Chapter 11 of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada by Captain Burton Dean. Chapter 11. 1906 to 14. Calgary continued. In giving now an account of the work of the Calgary Division, I may say the police district extended from the eastern boundary of British Columbia to the fourth meridian, a distance averaging roughly about 300 miles, with a longitudinal width of about 100. To administer this expanse of country, we had detachments, varying in number from 22 to 25, dotted over the area. There were, in the Rocky Mountains and the foothills, coal mines that depended on us for police protection and on the whole we had, comparatively speaking, very little trouble with the workmen. It is true that at one time there was a general strike of miners almost throughout the province of Alberta, and coal had even to be imported from outside sources. The elaborate governmental arrangements for arbitrating such disputes turned out to be a fizzle, cost the country money as a matter of course, and did no good at all. My clients, as I called them, that is, owners along the main line of the Canadian Pacific, used to come in and see me sometimes, but I always threw cold water upon anything in the nature of agitation. The directorate of one of the companies came one day and said that a considerable number of their workmen had acquired some rights on the company's town site by having erected buildings thereon for their own occupation, and those men would not go to work themselves and had generally a bad influence upon the mining community at large. Obviously, some legal process was necessary in order to make these malcontents vacate the company's property, and that always took time. The owners, of course, acting under legal advice, had taken their troubles to the courts, which had issued all manner of injunctions to the troublemakers to do so-and-so. It was in this halfway stage that one manager in particular came to me with a view to police protection. I said, I have not a man to give you, and if I had, he would simply be wasting his time. If you could spend the inside of a week with me, and realize how sometimes I am puzzled to find a single man for any duty whatever. When the courts are going full blast, and escorts and orderlies have to be found for them, lunatics and convicted prisoners have to be conducted to their respective destinations. Horses in the post have to be groomed and fed, even if they are turned out into the corral to exercise themselves. Do you realize that if I had not prisoners here, the horses would never be groomed at all, for there would be no one to do it, and one escort cannot look after more than five prisoners in a gang at a time? I should like you to realize that my divisions consist of sixty officers and men, all told and if i withdrew a man from a detachment elsewhere and sent him to you some other place suffers and what do you gain an additional red coat in your community will simply irritate your men and provoke them to breaches of the peace that is the very thing you want to avoid do nothing to irritate them if you can help it you tell me that all necessary process of the law has been served to enable your company to rid itself of the objectionable persons now encumbering your property? There is no necessity for the mounted police to butt into that proposition, and they have no right to do so. When the time comes, the order of the court will be issued to its own officers, sheriffs, bailiffs, etc., 
and if those officers find they cannot execute the orders of the court, reference will unquestionably be made to us. It will then be for me to decide whether I can enforce the decree of the court, or whether I have to apply for assistance. In the last resort, you understand, of course, that the militia might have to be called out. All that you have to do, my friend, is to sit tight and let the machine work. Don't let your men think you're worrying. Be as genial to them as you can, and you may avert a great deal of damage to your works. The manager in question, when he left me, said, Captain Dean, it does me good to come and talk to you. I feel like a different man. Well, I replied, it is an inexpensive form of entertainment, and you are quite welcome to any comfort that I can give you whenever you choose to come for it. But I bar visiting that village of yours. Goodbye. And with a laugh we parted. I have more than once mentioned prisoners in connection with Calgary. The guard-room there contained more prisoners than any other guard-room of the mounted police except at Dawson City in the Yukon. The only jail for females in the province of Alberta was situated in our grounds and was in our charge. I found it necessary to make a change after I had a few weeks' experience of Calgary and imported a matron of my own selection from Maple Creek and a great help and comfort she was to me. Sarah Stidaford was the widow of a staff sergeant of Royal Engineers who had served with his regiment in India and South Africa and had ridden in a baggage wagon over many a weary mile. When I first met her in 1902 at Maple Creek, she had lost her husband, was over sixty years old, and had been nursing maternity and other cases for twenty years. Some of the cases that we had to deal with were heartbreaking. That is where old Sarah Stutterford shone. Without any apparent desire to do more than pass the time of day if her patient were sufficiently affable for that much civility, she would unobtrusively get to the bottom of the trouble, and was thus better enabled to deal with the sufferer, who never failed to meet sympathy with confidence. One poor woman, I remember, had had, I think, fourteen children in a very short space of time, and was literally played out. She was done to death with motherhood, babyhood, and hard manual labor. No change, no relief from the monotony of the bald-headed prairie, with its dismal outlook, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and after that, the beyond. Father has got his work to do. There is in it some change, and it is not so bad for him. The children have their fun at school or elsewhere. But when or where does poor mother get any relief? Has she a neighbor with whom she can exchange a word once a week? In that country, of illimitable distances, it is most likely that she has not. The poor woman that I have been speaking of went to the asylum, and I have not heard of her since. Another case of a woman, just as sad, lingers in my memory. It happened in the country, and when the police report came in, I wrote a marginal note on it. The saddest story I have ever read in my life. Briefly, it was this. An inquest had been held on the body of a woman who had taken her own life, and a letter which she had written to her children was put in as an exhibit. The substance of it was that she loved her children as much as ever, and grieved to be parted from them, but the conditions of her life were intolerable, and she was therefore driven to deliver herself from her thraldom by the poison route. Her husband was apparently a Shylock, who must have his pound of flesh, 
and by the time her conjugal duties in that respect had been performed, she had done to her family the manifold and ever-increasing duties of a mother and a housekeeper. There was no time left in this world for a space to breathe, and she frankly admitted that she could not continue the fight. Hence the inquest. We did not take coroner's inquests very seriously in Western Canada. As a coroner's warrant, there will not suffice to place a man upon trial for homicide. But in every instance, the mounted police used to collect all the available evidence and place it upon record. It not infrequently happened that a body, which had been buried by virtue of a coroner's order, had to be exhumed, and the cause of death investigated in a magistrate's court. There is, on the other hand, a danger of going to the other extreme if the ancient crowner's quest is too lightly set aside. I had one notable instance of this in the early days at Lethbridge, what was known as the yard engine, in the course of its daily preambulations up and down a stretch of mile and a half or so, while shunting coal and other cars and making up trains, had imperceptibly become the vehicle whereby school children had thought that they might have a free ride between their homes and their school, etc. A kind-hearted engine-driver was always complacent, and he allowed them to climb into his cab in order to let them have their ride, and was always careful to take good care of them. But this practice was fraught with possibilities which might render the railway authorities ultimately responsible for a violent death, and, when their attention was called to it, they issued a peremptory order that no person other than one of their own recognized employees, should take unauthorized passages by such trains. Unhappily it befell that, notwithstanding the driver's care, a boy was killed. I rang up the coroner and insisted on an inquest. He replied that this was obviously an accident and the boy had no business to be there. I agreed with all that, but represented that the boy had come to a violent end, that something or somebody was responsible for the accident and that it was the coroner's business to inquire into the particulars. At the inquest, these were thoroughly thrashed out, and the storekeeper of the company deposed that he had been visiting an extensive coal shed, and, on his way back to his office, had crossed the railway lines in the neighbourhood of the accident, had noticed the switch in question, and, as he passed by, thoughtlessly pushed it over, with the result that the flat cars were deflected from their proper line of rails on to the line whereon some loaded cars were standing, and a boy died a violent death in consequence. Accidental death was the jury's verdict, and there was nothing more to be done. To return to Mrs. Stutterford, the manner in which she controlled her various ward women of all nationalities and lunatics amply justified my selection of a matron. As time went on, we had to get a night matron and then an assistant. With all the help which I did not stint to give her, it was difficult to keep the old woman from working herself to death. The number of prisoners that she looked after frequently ran from twenty to twenty-four, in accommodation that was supposed to provide for ten or twelve at the outside. It was just as bad on the male side. On one occasion, I had ninety-six prisoners all told, in my custody, in premises which were intended to receive only about fifty-five men, women, and lunatics. That was an exceptional occasion, when a bunch of prisoners for stealing rides on the railway was brought in, when my back happened to be turned, and the provost very properly did not refuse to receive them, 
as I would have done had I been on the spot. I resolutely refused to receive more prisoners than I could reasonably provide for. The cells in both guard rooms were always full, and beyond that it became a matter for my consideration. As a rule, I allowed that we could find room for about seventy without unpleasant overcrowding, but ructions sometimes threatened. The situation once became particularly strained. We had, some months previously, had a half-breed prisoner named Moses Brown, committed for a term of imprisonment from the city. We knew Moses and his actions quite well. He was suffering from a loathsome disease and was a nuisance to everybody whom he approached. On the day of his arrival, I instructed the provost to give him a pair of the cheap garden shears and to conduct him to the limit of the police reserve on the banks of the river and invite him to cut as much of the wire grass growing there as he felt disposed. If he should get tired in the course of the afternoon, he would be welcome to rest. When, at locking up time, the guard went round to look for Moses, he was not to be found, and the weeks ran into months before we heard of him again. We did not want to hear, be it observed, and I did not offer any reward for his recapture. Moses could not, however, apparently go away to his relations and friends on the prairie and give them the exclusive benefit of his society, but he must gravitate again towards Calgary and there fall foul of the city police. His return came to my notice when the provost handed me a warrant of commitment and said, Moses Brown is back. How did he come? said I. By the city Black Maria, sir. Tell the Black Maria to give my compliments to the chief of the city police and to say that we have no accommodation here for Moses Brown. A day or two later, the deputy attorney general at Edmonton rang me up. Good morning, etc., etc. What is the difficulty between you and the city police magistrate? Is there any? I inquired. I was not aware of it. Well, he rejoined, I have a letter here from him which leads me to think that there must be considerable trouble between you. Is that so? I retorted. I don't think you need worry. The young gentleman perhaps is under the impression that he is running my guard room as well as his own office, and if you will believe me, he is not doing anything of the kind. At the same time, I would say, send me that letter. It will amuse me to answer it. Goodbye. That settled that. Our guard rooms were, I should not omit to remark, places of execution, and although we had only two death sentences actually to carry out, we had several other prisoners under sentence for whom we had to provide the death watch, and an intolerable nuisance it was, until the sentences were commuted for one cause or another. A man named John Fisk, whose crimes, etc., is described under the heading of the Tucker Peach Murder, was the first to go. While he was awaiting the due process of the law, a man came to see me one afternoon, just as I was stepping off my veranda steps into my garden. A fine big man he was, with the eye of a religious enthusiast. He wanted to see John Fisk to convert him from the error of his ways. Before it was too late, and I explained to him, very patiently and quietly, that the convict was being attended daily by the spiritual pastor of his own choosing, and that, even if I wished, I could not admit a stranger to the exercise of that holy office. It would not be fair to the Methodist minister who was looking after the prisoner's spiritual welfare. My visitor, as I found, was not open to any sort of reason. He had a wild eye. 
He was as big a man as myself, and was probably fifty pounds heavier. When he finally realized that he was not to have the entree of the prison, he said, I summon you to the bar of God for refusing to allow me to see the condemned prisoner. I replied, I'll be there, I'll meet you, but in the meantime you cannot see John Fisk. Then he raised his voice and began to rant, and I heard an upstair window softly open, and pictured to myself an anxious little face looking out. So I walked quietly up to him and said, If you brawl here, I will have you locked up. He glared at me for a moment, and I did not know what he might do, but suddenly, without a word, he turned on his heel, and I did not see him for dust. The other condemned convict was an American citizen, who had brutally murdered the employer who had brought him into Canada from the United States, and he gave us quite a bit of extra and unnecessary trouble. His name was Jasper Collins, a native of Missouri, USA, and the story of his crime is related under the heading of The Benson Murder and Arson. This young man started a hunger strike. He would not take any nourishment, so we had to feed him forcibly. He would not speak or help himself in any way, so a constable was told off to nurse him. This was in addition to the death watch, who sat in a chair in the guardroom and gave his undivided attention to the occupant of the condemned cell. He thus brought himself to a very weak state, had to be assisted up the steps to the scaffold, and was sitting in a chair when the drop fell. I cannot omit to mention the loyal and devoted service which our prisoners used to receive from the Salvation Army. Every Sunday morning of their lives they held services on both sides of the guardroom, by men on the male side, by lasses on the other, and both sexes were always welcome. Rain, hail, shine or snow, the army never failed to keep watch and ward, and their one most persistent question to every poor creature who showed any reciprocity to their persuasions was, what can we do for you when you come out? They would take an expectant mother into their fold, nurse her through her confinement, and take every tender care of her and her baby until they could make some permanent provisions for both and all this for the sake of the faith that was in them. No other denomination troubled itself to do the like. One of the Roman Catholic priesthood always made a point of holding a short service in the guardroom every Sunday afternoon, and the women gladly listened to him, whether they were members of his flock or not. When a Roman Catholic bishop was appointed to the See of Calgary, the Oblate Fathers of the Immaculate Mary, O.M.I., they signed themselves, were generally withdrawn from the city parishes, and their places were taken by English-speaking clergy. The Oblate Fathers had spent their lives on the western prairie, and had helped to open up the country, witness the venerable Father Lacombe, without whose incomparable influence among the Blood Indians, the Canadian Pacific Railway would not have been constructed without trouble in 1882. The then general manager of the CPR, the late Sir William Van Horn, recognized this when he sent to the Reverend Father a life pass on the railway as a charm against conductors. In his latter years, Father Lacombe conceived the idea of immortalizing himself by the erection of a Lacombe house for the old and destitute pilgrims among whom he had spent so many years of his life. All sorts of stories are told of his begging faculty. He had literally nothing himself. 
There was a very nice property of about 200 acres, situated on Fish Creek, about 10 miles distant from Calgary, and Father Lacombe had his eye on this. For various reasons, Pat Burns, the cattle king, did not respond to invitations in this direction, and drove the old father to several other locations whereof he could take his choice. But he was quite irresponsive, and was in no way to be diverted from Fish Creek. When it came to the final point, the old father said, "'You give me dat or you give me nothing.' Fish Creek is the site of his home, to which I paid almost my last visit in Calgary to say goodbye to my old friend, then in the very late eighties and feeble. I can never forget his coming to see me in 1902 when I was in hospital at Lethbridge, worn out both mentally and physically, and having been obliged to send my wife to the Pacific Coast for change of air and treatment. End of chapter 11